I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Sinister Sightings 222. All right, jumping right in. Hello, ladies. I've been listening to you a little over six months now and am finally caught up with the regular part of your show. I had to finish that before my OCD would let me move to the extras we get from being creepinati. I know someone else said the same thing before and I totes am the same. I love the mixture of true crime and paranormal. I do like sinister sightings as well, but if you ever ran out of those, I would still be a listener because you girls do such an amazing job. Not that that will ever happen, Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know her too I was well. Say, you don't fucking know me. You do, but you know. It's taken me a while to figure out what story to share because, well, I have a few for both sides to share. I decided to start with a true crime. I'm going to start with my story on February 25th, 2007. I had won some tickets to meet and greet with Saliva, the band who does the click, click, boom, and many other great songs. I won tickets by calling in and giving my Valentine's Day poem of Roses are Red, Violets are Blue, Valentine's Day sucks, so what's it to you? I know, lame, but I literally had five seconds to think something up as a DJ said the first two callers will get to go head to head and whoever's is better wins. I had also just been blown off by some guy earlier that day. Anyway, I decided to take my little brother because he's huge into music and this would be fun for the both of us to just do together. I hadn't seen him for a while because he was working two jobs and going to school to work in the medical field. We had a blast. Then, about one week later, I got to see him for about 20 minutes at my parents' new house. He was doing some finishing work on it so they could finally move in. He and my oldest brother had been arguing over something. I just remember telling him it would all be water under the bridge soon and not to worry about it. Gave him a hug, told him I love him, and said goodbye. That was the last time I spoke to or saw him. About a week later, he died in a fire with four of his friends. On March 9, 2007, my brother's car wouldn't start. He was supposed to go to work at a nursing home where he was a CNA. I guess this had been an ongoing issue with his car and its sporadic non-starting because of a wiring issue. He had had enough and had been invited to go to a friend's house an hour away in Chicago anyway. So he and his friends, Joe and Ian, pick him up and head out there for the night. They were around his age, 21 to 24. So, like most people their age, they went bar hopping. They ended the night at the apartment of their mutual friends, Jen and Jason. They were all friends from our small town, but Jen and Jason moved to Chicago as friends to split rent together. They continued to have fun at the apartment, having a couple of other people over. To let the last friend into the apartment building, who we'll call Bill because IDK if he would want his name used, they kept hitting the buzzer to the door so he could find the right place. He was trying to go to the wrong building. While doing this, they had unintentionally let a homeless woman named Mary Smith into the building. So it's early March in Chicago. It's cold outside. Mary had come in to stay warm. She was hanging out in the stairwell. The building was being renovated on the inside, so there were paint cans and such in the stairwell. In the early morning hours when Bill was leaving, he gave Mary paper money as he was just a nice guy doing something nice. After Bill was gone, Mary lit the money on fire to warm her feet. This actually turned into a big fire that eventually got to the paint cans and became much bigger. The only occupants of the building at the time were on the third story apartment where my brother and his friends were. The apartment caught fire. There was no sprinkler system and no working smoke detectors. My brother Jared and his friends, Joe, Jason, and Jennifer all died in the fire. Ian was the only survivor. He jumped out of the third story window. When first responders arrived, they thought he was dead. He had shattered his pelvis, broken bones everywhere. 
I can't remember what all was wrong with him. He said he could barely moan to let them know he was still alive. My brother couldn't even make it to his own funeral. He was so badly burned that they had to use dental records. He had just done some sort of Invisalign, so they had a hard time finding current dental records. We did have the funeral without him actually being confirmed. My dad did make a joke to me alone in the car about how he would miss his own funeral. Mary was found later that day. She had gone into a diner or something where people could smell the smoke on her. She was brought in for questioning and arrested. She was later found not fit to stand trial. Mary suffers from schizophrenic paranoia. She was diagnosed at the age of 18 and has been on and off medications her whole life. Mary was 44 when this happened. Her family was no longer taking care of her, so she was out on the streets because we have such a shitty system. About a year later, Mary stood trial and was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life in a mental facility. Now, this is where I'm always talking back with you two when the subject is brought up. It's been 14 years since Mary was sentenced. The doctors at her facility are now trying to get her released. They say now she's been taking her meds and she's fine to rejoin the community. I totally disagree. How can there be a guarantee that she will stay medicated? Her family did not help her to stay on her meds before. What's changed now? I don't trust it at all. And now we're being forced to relive this whole nightmare. The court date keeps getting pushed back because of the DA's office doing what they can to have the best prosecution. After Jared died, my family was not the same. My poor dad just stopped taking care of himself. He had diabetes. He passed in 2014 of heart and kidney failure. My oldest brother, Kevin, the one who had argued with Jared, passed away in 2019 at the age of 44. He never forgave himself for their fight and blamed himself for Jared's death. I don't want to go into details of how he died. I don't hate Mary, and I forgive her for what she did, but it's hard to live with what her actions did to my family. If it could be 100% guaranteed that she would always be medicated on the outside, I would be fine with her release. No one can guarantee that, though. Sorry this was heavy and long. I just wanted to share the true crime story that was so close to me, and I can fill y'all in on how this kind of tragedy affects a person and family. I'm always happy to answer any questions. I love you girls in the community you have created. Love, 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 love the show, and I hope y'all can do this podcast forever. My my next write-in won't be so long or heavy, I promise. Thanks for reading this. Love, Amanda from Illinois. P.S. We did file a lawsuit against the owners of the building for wrongful death because of the fire alarm situation. Each family was awarded some money. The survivor, Ian, was awarded his own amount. I figure that might be a question, so just remember to add that. We are so sorry for your loss. Absolutely. It kind of reminds me of a story that we did where, um, was it the train one? Where the guy was off of his medication and like attacked all these people on the train and then they were going to release him. The bus. Yeah. 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 yeah, The bus. Because they were like, he's better now that he's on his medication. It's like, well, he had been prescribed medicine before that he hadn't taken. And it's like, I understand that people can live and support people to live every single day with a mental illness. Hell, I have one. But people live with paranoid schizophrenia every day and people don't die from it. So if you're not going to do the things that you need to do to protect people and yourself, then you need help. Exactly. That's so much trauma for one family. Okay, the next one. Hauntings and compliments. I just found your podcast and I have been listening to it from the first episode for the last week. I'm only on episode 16, but I have got to say this is the best podcast. The mix of true crime and ghost stories, I love it. It gets me through the workday and my hour commute. You guys should look up Goatman's Bridge if you haven't covered it yet. It's a local ghost story in Denton, Texas, which is close to my hometown. Also, your BFF, Zach Bagans, with Ghost Adventures, actually went and did an episode down there on the bridge, which I thought was super fucking cool. 
I have to admit, I used to be a skeptic of the paranormal until I spent the night with one of my friends in middle school. She told me on the way to her house that her house was very haunted. And as a middle schooler who just thought it was a bunch of bullshit, I blew it off. She said that she would hear horse-drawn carriages outside her window at night, doors would open and close on their own, and things would be moved around the house, all kinds of stuff. Again, I was a skeptic. Before we got to her house, we stopped at a store to buy snacks and everything you would need to stay up all night. So I had some change from that shopping event in my pocket. This is important because it comes into play later. So we get to her house and it's only like three in the afternoon and it's summer in Texas and she has a pool. So we get to her room, we dump all of our shit on the ground and change into our swimsuits and go out to the pool. We're just hanging out, and she starts telling me about all the creepy shit that happens. She said her grandmother died in the room next to her, and she constantly comes to her room to check on her. Like, she couldn't have told me that when I was still safe in the car with my mom? I digress. She then says that there's a poltergeist that just chills through the house, and really just causes a ruckus. He throws things around, and opens all the cabinets and drawers in the kitchen, turns on the lights, etc., Just your normal poltergeist type activity. She said there was another spirit, but she didn't know who or where it came from. At this point, I'm thinking there's no way any of this shit is about to happen. A couple of hours go by and we're hungry, so we go in to eat. And I shit you not, when we opened the back door into the kitchen, every one of the cabinets and drawers were open. We went to her room to change and I picked up the shorts I had on previously and the change fell out of my pocket onto the floor and I left it there, put my shorts back on and we were hanging out in her room chit-chatting and her TV turned on by itself. Then the channel skipped. I was convinced that she had the remote so I looked at her and she pointed to the remote on her dresser. So at this point, I'm a little freaked out but we persist with the epic sleepover that we're about to have. We decided that we wanted to go swim again in the dark in the county. Not our best idea, but what did we know? We get outside to the pool, jump in, and are just hanging out again. And then her back door opens, then closes. And then we hear footsteps that seem to walk to the chairs on the side of the pool. Still not trying to acknowledge it, I want to blow it off, until we hear the footsteps go back to the door. The door opens and closes again. At this point, I'm like, let's just go in. We get back to her room and we're trying to start a movie and her bedroom door opens and closes. No one was there. So we sat there and the fucking change that I left laying on the ground starts flying at us. At this point, I'm like, fuck no. And I call my mom and tell her that my stomach's acting up and I need to come home. She said, wait until the morning. She's not driving that late to come get me. So I had to stay. And the moment that I saw the light come through her window, I was on the phone with my mom. Now my friend did tell everyone or everything to leave us alone and it seemed to have worked. But needless to say, no more badass sleepovers were had there. I did not think I would live to see daylight. I was terrified. This was my biggest ghost encounter and what ultimately made me a believer. Anyway, sorry for the length here, and if you made it this far, thank you. Thank you guys for bringing a little bit of laughter to my day. I hope you guys are still loving doing the podcast because I will definitely keep listening. K. We did do Goatman's Bridge, so I hope you check out that episode because that was a good one. Your friend all casually like, yeah, we've got a poltergeist. His name's Bob. I mean, <laughs> uh, no sis. No thank you. And not just a poltergeist, but like a dead grandma, horses outside. (laughs) What the fuck? 
Also, I was the kid that got homesick at friends' houses whenever I was a kid. But I tell you what, no matter what time of night it was, if I called my dad, he was coming. And I tell you, that is such an amazing feeling to know that like, if you have to call them, they're going to come get you. Yeah. So I hate that you had to stay there scared. Meanwhile, of course, that's what I get fixated on. <laughs> Not the poltergeist or whatever, Don- what do you call it? Pulty? Yeah. <laughs> Also, though, about the change, that shit hurts. Do not chunk that at me. At least your friend was cool and was like, y'all leave her alone. You know, she she knew you were scared. She tried to help you. Okay, the next one. Ouija board spoke Latin and domestic violence. Hey, beautiful ladies. Thank you so much for always getting me through the workday. Although, I'm sure my coworkers are confused by all the seemingly random grimaces or laughs I can't keep out while listening to you gals. My name is Savannah, and I have both paranormal and true crime story to share with you today that you hopefully will find entertaining enough to share. My first story is a Ouija board experience. I can already hear you guys saying what a bad idea this is, and trust me, you're right. But my friends and I had been smoking the devil's lettuce, so to speak, and were in quite a silly, goofy mood that night. In order for you to fully understand this story, I need to provide some context. My best friend, we'll call her Mary, used to live in an apartment that was behind a veterinary office and was owned by the vet that also owned the clinic. Her apartment was on a dead-end street in a city that is pretty run down for the area. Other than the vet office, her apartment was surrounded by a bunch of abandoned factories. The apartment was a sort of loft style as it was above the garage with stairs up the side of the building that led to her living space above the garage. What was in the garage, you ask? Well, it had a chest of freezers inside where the animals that had passed away at the vet clinic were stored until their remains were picked up by either their owners or to be cremated. Place was spooky as hell and basically falling apart, but you can't beat $400 a month for rent and utilities in 2020. And yep, we played the Ouija board above the animal graveyard. Dumb. I'm not sure if the don't play in a graveyard rule only applies to human graveyards, but I'm sure it didn't help regardless. Anyway, once we had decided we wanted to fuck around with a Ouija board, we made one on a sheet of paper and used a shot glass for a planchette. There was a group of four of us, me, Mary, my boyfriend, and another friend. We started moving the shot glass around the makeshift board and started in with, hello, is someone there? We were all laughing and giggling, and for the first few rounds, it was obvious that one of us was just pulling the planchette to scare the others, and then the person we were trying to scare, usually Mary, would get frustrated and drag the planchette over to goodbye before telling the rest of us to take it seriously. Finally, we relented and promised that we would actually take it serious this time. We again asked if there was anyone there who wanted to speak with us and then just waited. Each of us with fingers lightly resting on the immobile shot glass. We sat for a few minutes and I think we were ready to give up when the shot glass unbelievably ever so slowly crept to the yes on the board. Somebody was there. Obviously, all of us thought it was still someone messing around, but looking up from the Ouija board and at the faces of my friends told me otherwise. Everyone's eyes were slightly wide and had a bewildered look on their face. Things weren't necessarily scary, but the energy had changed. We asked various questions like how old the spirit was, what its name was, and where it was from. The planchette just seemed to move around aimlessly at these questions, moving very slowly and then coming to rest over different letters that did not spell anything. We then asked it if it had something it wanted to say to us. At this, the planchette started to look like it was moving with actual purpose. It was still moving slowly, but it moved across the board touching the letters A-D-U-N-U and M-A-D-U-N-U-M. 
Now, what the fuck does that even mean? We were excited that the planchette had actually seemed to move, even if it did just spell out random letters. So at this point, my boyfriend removed himself from the game in order to write down anything else it spelled out while us three girls decided to continue to play. We asked it what the letters it had chosen meant and the planchette moved up to numbers on the board and hovered over the number two and then hovered over the number one. We still did not discern anything meaningful from this, so we just kept saying we were confused and to clarify what it was trying to say. In response, the planchette just kept going back and forth between the two and the one and over and over. Two, one, two, one, two, one. By this point, we were starting to get really freaked out as we knew that a phrase or a pattern being repeated over and over was not a good sign. Meanwhile, my boyfriend is going down a Google rabbit hole, searching the letters it spelled out earlier under different language translators and with different spacing to see if it actually meant anything. Finally, he tried Latin. Turns out the ad unum is a Latin phrase with ad meaning to, forward, near, at, in, by, or without, and unum meaning one single alone. Yes, we realized the absolute dread of fucking ad unum meant to one. Nope, 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 nope. We slid the shot glass over goodbye real fucking quick and took the board out to the dumpster. Now, I want to tell myself that this was just my boyfriend or one of my friends trying to scare the rest of us by pulling out some secret knowledge of Latin that they decided to pull out of their asses in that moment. But then I remembered that I know my friends and we're all a group of college dropout stoners that barely know English, let alone the lost language of Latin. So what do you ladies think? Did a demon come talk to us that night or were one of my friends secretly linguistically gifted and up to a certain level of assholery that night? My second story is darker and was definitely a lot scarier to me, even though I did not directly experience it. When I was 19, I moved out of my parents' house into the apartment that I still currently live in. During my first year here, I had a roommate who has since moved out and I now live alone. I was excited as hell to move out into this apartment. So as soon as Elise was signed, I moved my ass in and slept there even though it took my roommate a few weeks to get fully moved in. The building where I live is a complex and I lived on the third floor. This took place on my second night here and I was alone. It was about 9.30 at night and I was getting ready for bed and was in my kitchen, which is directly across from my front door that faced the hallway of the apartment complex. I heard voices and loud steps in the hallway, so you already know my nosy ass tiptoed over to the peephole to see what was going on and who the hell was mad. When I looked through, I saw a man standing directly in front of my door facing the stairwell, which is right next to my door. I could hear a woman sobbing in the stairwell, but she was just out of sight. The man was tall and had a beer in his hand. He just looked mean. He was urging the woman to be quiet and come back to his apartment to talk with him in a forced whispered through gritted teeth while the woman just kept repeating no and that she was scared of him between sobs. She sounded so afraid and my heart just broke for her and my adrenaline began to rush as well, causing tremors to move through my body. I wanted to scream through the door for him to just leave her alone, but I just couldn't seem to make myself do it. I was scared too, and if I stood up to this man, he would know exactly where to find me. The man was getting angrier and angrier as she refused to go back, and his voice was rising. His urging for her to come back and that he overreacted, whatever that means, shifted to him yelling at her that he only did what he did because she was being a bitch, that it was her fault, and that she was making a scene. She told him no, that she was going home. 
I swear to God, this man's face contorted in such a way that made him look evil. I still feel guilty that I just stood there hiding behind that door, but I was honestly frozen in fear. He screamed at the top of his lungs that if she left that they were over, then hurled his beer bottle down the stairs at her. I heard the bottle explode and her hurried footsteps as she ran down the stairs and out of the building. And he turned around and walked back down the hall, slamming his door so hard that the floor rattled. As soon as he was out of sight, I forced myself to open the door, ran down the stairs to make sure that the woman had made it out safely and that she didn't need help. But I only saw the taillights from her car as she sped off. At this point, I was regretting my choice to live there and was dreading the possibility that he would convince her to come back or find another girl and this would become a regular occurrence. Crying, I called my ex-boyfriend and told him what happened and asked him what I should do and that I wanted to call the police. Unfortunately, I was in my own toxic relationship at the time, and despite my shaking voice, I don't think he really believed me and wasn't sympathetic at all. He just kept telling me that women love to play the victim and that involving the police would be stupid because all I knew is that he lived on the third floor, not his name or even his apartment number, and that all I would accomplish is making a violent man my enemy. I'm ashamed to say that I was so emotionally worn down at this point that I listened to him. Luckily, in the subsequent years, nothing else like this happened, and the woman never returned a as far as I know. I hope that in the meantime, we have both been able to do better for ourselves and that she never experienced anything like that again. I'm going to go to the first part of your story because when you said $400 rent, I was expecting this to be like circa 2000 maybe. Yeah. Or maybe sooner. Not 2020. Yeah, I'd be living above those animals too. Uh-huh. Why is it when people make their own Ouija board, it's creepier to me? I don't know, but what does 2-1 mean? I don't know, and I'm not looking that up. Is that a thing, like, with the repetitive thing? Yeah, like Zozo. Oh, God, I'm an idiot. I don't remember anything. I figured we had talked about that because they said what they Uh said. But also, that poor girl that was, like, being told she's the problem, all the things. And then you call your ex-boyfriend for some condolence or some sympathy or some whatever the word is I'm trying to say. And he's doing the same thing to you. Yeah. Women love to be the victims. Fuck you, dude. Absolutely. Like, literally, fuck all the way off. Fall off of that and then fuck off again. (laughs) I completely understand being frozen because you have to protect yourself as well. It's like we've talked about before with what would we do if someone came to our door for help because you're scared to open the door because you hear that, you know, that's how people try to trick you and attack you is by having like a decoy. Yeah, because you want to like if it's a woman, you want to think that like that woman needs help or that a woman could never be part of a man's plan like that. But that's not the case. Okay, the next one. Not guilty by reason of mental illness? Question mark. Hi, I've been listening to y'all for a few weeks now and I'm totally enjoying the show. The Sinister Sightings episodes are my favorite. Just love the diversity of the writers and their experiences. Thank you for being such interested and caring people and inspiring these confidences. Here's a true crime story with the question in its center. I worked in a field that blended forensics and mental health, and sometimes I feel like I've heard just about everything. Over the years, I had many patients who had been found not guilty of serious crimes due to mental illness. Each of their stories is tragic and, to me, fascinating. When does mental illness cause a person to not be responsible for their actions? Where's that line? Here's a real-life example of a murder case from the late 70s where the perpetrator was remanded to a psychiatric hospital instead of prison. I interacted with this person more than 20 years after the murder, so she was never my patient. 
Of interest, details from this crime reportedly made it to the film Fatal Attraction. Although the murder and much of this information is a matter of public record, because I'm including my personal opinion about the outcome and a couple of details that I can't find in the public domain, I'm going to change the names. Let's call our killer Jane. In 1976, Jane was almost 30 and living in a large Midwestern city. She worked as a bank teller and her circle of acquaintances was small. Sometimes she went out for drinks with co-workers after work and one night she met a man in a bar who we'll call Paul. Jane and Paul struck up a conversation and ended up going out several times. From his perspective, this was a casual relationship and after a few months, he didn't pursue it further. Jane did not accept the end of their brief relationship. She was obsessed with him and told herself that he felt the same way about her. In her mind, they were in love and she invented other reasons than his disinterest that kept them apart. She talked of him to her co-workers and at one point came in wearing a diamond ring saying that she and Paul were engaged. It was later determined that she had purchased the ring herself. In the meantime, Paul met and married another woman whom we'll call Rose. After their wedding, they moved into a lovely house in a suburban neighborhood. Neither of them had any idea about the extent of Jane's obsession with Paul. There is no indication that Jane has been harassing them, although her role as a former girlfriend and possible suspect was quickly noted early on, so there well may have been unwanted communication. One afternoon, less than a month after Paul and Rose's wedding, Jane went to their house. She dressed up in work clothes and disguised herself as a man, with her hair tucked into a painter's hat. She took painting supplies with her. She apparently knew Rose was home alone. Once at the house, she was able to convince Rose that she had been hired by Paul to do some interior painting and gained entry. Jane stabbed Rose 98 times. She had brought a condom with her and used the semen it contained to make the murder look sexually motivated. She propped Rose's body up in the bloody entranceway for Paul to find. Outside the house and on nearby houses, she spray-painted ominous warnings. There will be more. You will be next. Like many criminals before her, Jane was apprehended because she returned to the scene. When she drove up asking questions, her demeanor was odd enough that she was stopped. Then her car was searched. They found the black spray paint and other items related to the murder in her car and arrested her. During the trial, Jane was found to be an uncontrollable liar who invented an elaborate tale as an alibi. Her story included being out at a local bar and meeting a man who took her to Paul and Rose's house where it was he who stabbed Rose but forced Jane to participate. She was ultimately found guilty, but the verdict was overturned to not guilty by reason of mental illness after assessments showed the severity of her delusional thinking. I always wondered how someone as organized as Jane was in planning this murder could be found not capable of taking responsibility for her behavior. She had what we call erotomanic delusions. Her belief that Paul actually wanted to be with her and that Rose was somehow preventing them from being together was her reported motive. But did Jane know right from wrong at the time she attacked and killed Rose? I think she did. Her case was completely different in my eyes from the case where the person was psychotic and hallucinating when they committed a crime. As a side note, erotomania probably figures in some stalking cases that result in violent crimes, but the perpetrator is typically a man. Back when Jane committed this murder, it was probably even more difficult for people to imagine a woman doing what she did. She was also a person who cried easily and seemed younger than her years, which did not harm her defense. 
Jane was still a self-involved liar when I encountered her, with minimal insight into herself and no true remorse. More than two decades in a secure state hospital did not seem to have any impact on her. From someone a little closer than most to true crime, please call me Sarah. That's so fucking scary. Like, yeah, we've seen fatal attraction and we know how this stuff happens. It's so scary that she's probably so believable. And the people at her work thought something might have been off because, you know, they might not have seen Paul in a long time and now they're married. But still, it's like you don't really want to question someone when they have like a ring and stuff. I'm with you about the planning because it's not like it was a moment of passion. It's not like something got away from her or whatever. Like she knew what she was doing. Like she had it planned out. She had the tools. She didn't just like go to this house to spy on them and something happened and she like grabbed a kitchen knife. She had a condom with semen. Like that is beyond. And she dressed up like a man. So how you were saying like you don't know if they had any interaction beforehand. I feel like they did because she disguised herself. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I also agree with you that I think that she knew what she was doing. Yeah. And then how you said, like, she has no remorse or anything now, but I would love more of your stories. Okay, the next one. Graveside Shenanigans. First off, let me tell you how much I love your podcast. I started listening in the summer of 2022 on a road trip with the fam, and my hubby and I fell in love instantly. I've since then binged all your episodes and look forward to every Monday and Thursday when your new content comes out. I love knowing that I'm not the only one with a potty mouth and also appreciate you knowing the struggles that us extra large pizzas have to deal with. Let me get to it. My husband and I have been together for 14 years now, married for almost 12. When we met, my mother-in-law was a spry, feisty woman who loved deeply for her three kids, but even more so for her precious grandbabies. In the fall of 2016, she was diagnosed with MS and quickly became bound to a walker and sometimes a wheelchair. Her love for life was not deterred, and she invested all of her energy into my father-in-law and her family. We had two sweet little boys in 2014 and 16 and became pregnant with our third child in the fall of 2017. Around the time I found out I was pregnant, she became ill and doctors found a mass on her stomach. Ironically, she and I both had doctor's appointments on the same day. One for her to find out if the mass was cancerous and one for me to find the heartbeat of the new babe. November 2nd is one I remember very well as it's the day I realized my baby had no heartbeat and the day we found out that she had stomach cancer. Her doctor started treatment right away and she was put on maintenance drug for her cancer after successful rounds of chemo were able to shrink the tumor. Although we knew she would never be rid of the cancer, knowing the drug was to keep it at bay was comforting. Fast forward to 2020. We got pregnant and successfully delivered our miracle baby in the midst of the pandemic. But my mother-in-law's health was deteriorating rapidly. She became bound to a hospital bed and was put on hospice in the fall of 2021. In the summer of 2022, we were able to visit her one last time and say our goodbyes. Having to watch your kids say goodbye to a grandparent could possibly be one of the hardest things to do. Next to watching my hubby say goodbye to his mama. After she passed, my hubby never really showed a ton of emotions and kept the line of she's in a better place when people would ask how he was doing. I knew this was bullshit because I knew my husband was reeling from the loss of his mom as his mom was one of his favorite people on the planet. The day of the graveside service was hot. We live in Missouri where it's a different kind of hot. It's humid and the air is wet and it's just not fun at all to be outside. In order to provide a little relief from the shade, the church set up a tent with a few chairs for the family to sit in. There were only enough chairs for my husband, sister-in-law, and father-in-law, and I was busy chasing the littles. My oldest son, who is eight, is sitting on my husband's lap. 
Before I continue, let me tell you about my hubby. He's 6'5", a big man, one of the many reasons I fell for him. He's pretty much sweating all of the time. The preacher begins the prayer to close the service and everyone falls silent. Without warning, the legs of the folding chair my husband is sitting in fold and he and my son fall to the ground. What I noticed was that the fall was almost in slow motion, like he had been lifted off the chair and placed on the ground. Of course, the entire crowd of people began laughing and he just laughed it off. It seemed like a good way to bring some humor to a time of sadness. The service ends and I expect that I'm going to have to give my husband a pep talk to make him feel not embarrassed about the chair. Let's be real, had it been me, I would have gotten up and ran crying to the car. When I got to him, he had the biggest smile on his face and seemed completely unfazed. I asked him if he was okay. He said, yeah, you're not going to believe this though. I said, believe what? He said, I was feeling kind of upset and almost mad at mom that she hadn't given me any sign that she was okay or that she was around. During the service, I said to her, okay, mom, if you're here, I need a sign. And I needed it to be a big sign, like one that's obvious, a sign I can't ignore, something like my chair breaking. He had a look of closure and almost satisfaction in his eyes. In a time that should have been sad and a time of mourning, he was able to find some peace in the shenanigans of his mom. He isn't a believer in the paranormal, but I think his mind was changed that day. I know everyone says this, so why stop now? Sorry this is long, but thank you for sharing my story. Creep it real and don't get scared, Bailey. That's how it was at my dad's funeral when we did the graveside. It was June in Mississippi. It was hot. Oh, and did I mention the air went out at the funeral parlor? So there was no air his whole service either. It was horrible. Yes, Donna, there's the voice again. Oh my God. It it needed to explain. (laughs) Like, not only are you bawling, so you're stuffy and you're hot and you're trying to look decent. So your hair's down, you got a dress on, you're chafing, all the things. (laughs) But then to fall on those stupid chairs that they set out at the graveside, just topple me over in the grave with them because (laughs) I would never be okay. Yeah. Except for your husband asked for it. He literally said, like, break my chair, mom. That's very true. All I could think about was Shallow How. I'm glad they didn't get hurt, but it sounded like your mother-in-law like lifted them. Okay, the next one. My mildly haunted house and a bittersweet goodbye. Hi, ladies. To start, I love your podcast. It keeps me entertained while doing homework, and it's my favorite thing to listen to while getting ready for bed. I haven't had too many paranormal encounters, but these are the main few, and a mini crime story to add some spice. I've been meaning to write in for a while, but ADHD is a bitch and I keep forgetting. Don't worry, I drank as much coffee as I could find and sat down to write this out before I get sidetracked again. Along with that train of thought, I want to apologize in advance for any confusing or random sentences. I struggle to organize my thoughts. I'm going to start off with my paranormal stories. The first is kind of funny and the other is kind of sad. Trigger warning for the second one, suicide. The first one is about a ghost that chills in my house. To give context, I need to explain a bit about how my house is set up. My room is on the second floor and directly beneath is the guest bedroom along with the garage being under a small section of my room as well. The guest bedroom is mainly where Mr. Ghost stays. It's easy to tell because that room is always a few degrees colder than the rest of the house, even when we turn the thermostat up. And the lights act up sometimes flickering and turning off. This ghost doesn't seem harmful in any way, but sometimes he likes to remind us that he's there. I'll be home for hours at a time, and as per usual, I spend most of that time sitting in my room, as every teenager does. Because my room is partly over the garage, I can hear what's going on in it. Every time I'm home alone, I hear the garage door opening, people walking in, and voices multiple times before my family comes home. 
The first few times this happened, I went downstairs to say hi to my family, but no one was there. As you can imagine, I was incredibly confused and a little creeped out, but would just shrug it off and go back upstairs. Now it doesn't bother me at all and I'm always sure to say hi to Mr. Ghost. My second story has two parts, and again, I want to give a trigger warning for suicide. Over the summer, my best friend died by suicide. It's been a rough journey from then, but I did get a chance to say goodbye, which helped put my mind at ease. The day my friend died, I was starting at my current job. I work at a cookie shop, and I was learning all of the tasks. One of the tasks is to scoop cookie dough to get it ready to bake. When you first learn this, you need to weigh all the balls of dough to make sure they're the right size, only until you get the hang of it. My friend had died in the morning, and I didn't find out about it until around 9.30 that night. Before I got the call, I had been scooping cookie dough and using the scale to make sure I was scooping the right size. The funny thing is, the scale was going crazy when nothing was on it, going way up and then dropping back down to zero, no matter how many times I reset it. I asked my coworker if this was a normal thing, and she said no. We were both confused. Five minutes later, I got the call. I like to think that was him messing with me as a way to say goodbye. The second part happened a few weeks after he had passed. Another one of my best friends, who was also super close with him, and his mom had been telling me about how they dreamt about him. I was obviously distraught and jealous, as I couldn't remember most of my dreams, and the ones I did were nightmares that he wasn't in. One of the hardest things for me is that I didn't have a chance to say goodbye. All I wanted to do was hug him and tell him I loved him a proper goodbye. Well, finally, I had a dream about him. In the dream, we were running from something. I don't remember what. And we got to a point where we needed to split up. It's funny because I don't remember feeling stressed or scared at all. I was just happy he was there and I wasn't scared to split up. I actually felt calm. I vividly remember us stopping for a second to say goodbye. I gave him a big hug, told him I loved him, and kissed his cheek. He hugged me back and told me not to be sad because he knew I loved him and he loved me too, and he promised that I would see him again. After that, we ran down different hallways and I woke up without seeing him again. I haven't dreamt of him since, but he loved the stars, so every time I'm out at night, I look up at the stars and say hi. Hopefully this email isn't too long and boring. I know it's not as crazy as the others. Love you ladies. Creep it real and stay spooky. Izzy. Okay, that wasn't long or boring. That was so sad and sweet. How you said a bittersweet goodbye. Uh, But can we go back to where Mr. Ghost has friends coming over? Because you said you heard like people talking and like people coming in, you know, and thought it was your family. So Mr. Ghost is just throwing a party. I love his name, Mr. Ghost. I don't know. That gave me a little giggle. And unless Mr. Ghost's friends are bringing a charcuterie board, they are not invited. And all jokes aside, we are very sorry for your loss. Okay, the next one. Hello, ladies. My name is Chad. Before you get excited, Donna, my wife, Jennifer, got me listening to your show while we were in the car. Well, she sounds fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) We get to laughing at your comments or have to back up the show to make sure we heard some of your analogies or little phrases. For a little background, I love to scare people, either jump scares or carefully orchestrated plans. On to the story. Several years ago, after the kids were in bed, we decided to watch the movie Darkness Falls. If you've never seen it, the premise is that the Tooth Fairy will kill you if you see it. The only way to protect yourself is to stay in the light. As we were watching the movie, Jennifer was drinking a little. Just about the time the movie was over, one of our friends stopped by to drop something off. Jennifer went outside. At this time, I took the opportunity to go through the house and turn off every light. The only light was the glow from the TV. I sat back down and waited. Our friend left and Jennifer looked through the door and saw the lights were off. 
She started knocking on the door and asking me to turn the lights back on. Side note, it's during early spring, so it was just above freezing outside. I waited about a minute before I turned the light on. Just to be clear, she could have opened the door and turned the light on as the switch was right beside the door. The second I turned on the light, she did a flight of the bubble bee through the house and turned on every light and made her way to the basement where our bedroom was at the time. I went to bed shortly after. By the time I got to the bedroom, she was asleep, or so I thought. I turned off the bedroom light and she sat straight up with a voice that could have been used in the exorcist and said, turn on the lights. I'm thinking, great, now I have to sleep with the light on. I climb in bed to finally get to sleep. Sometime in the middle of the night, I turned over, just turned over, mind you, and Jennifer sits straight up and does what can only be described as her impression of the Exorcist movie, and she turns her head with the same voice and says, don't touch the light, after which she goes right back to sleep. In the morning, while she was getting the kids ready for school, I was getting ready for work, and I asked her if she remembered what she did, and she shamefully admitted that she did. I then told her that no more alcohol and scary movies for her. I hope you enjoyed that story, Chad. That's fantastic. She said, bitch, don't touch my lights. (laughs) But also, I'm the same way. We all know that I do not go into a bathroom with it dark and stuff. I don't know why. I trust myself to have my hand, like, where I can't even see it in the dark because I'm, like, trying to get there before I even enter the room. Yeah. Someone could slice my hand off. Why do I not think of that? Doesn't matter. I just need the light on. So, yeah, she could have opened the door and turned on the light, but... It means more if you turned on the light. (laughs) I can just, like, I don't even know what she looks like, but I can just see her looking in through the door being like, turn on the light. Yes. Also, Chad, do you have any single brothers? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the last one. Yes, I was possessed. Hey, ladies, I would like to stay anonymous, but you can refer to me as Jay. I would like to say that I'm a new listener and have never listened to a podcast until I started listening to you ladies. It's like chatting and laughing with some friends. Thank you for keeping my days funny. I literally love you ladies and thank you for being my amazing paranormal slash crime junkie besties. So the year is 2008 to 2009. I was probably 13. I don't know how or even why it started, but it did. And it was the worst time of my life. I decided to hang out with some friends and of course, brought out a Ouija board. Nothing happened or so I thought. So I went home that night and had the most vivid dream. Heaven was on one side, hell was on the other side. I literally woke up screaming, sweating, and trembling. My mother came bursting through my door like a bat out of hell, hollering, what's going on? She thought someone had broke into the house. I told her I had a bad dream and I was okay, so she went back to bed. But after she left, there were two red eyes staring at me from the top of my closet, like crouched. My closet was completely open, and these eyes never stopped staring, even during the day. My mood quickly changed. I was always depressed. I didn't want to do anything with my family, and I had always wanted to be with them. Anyway, so like maybe two weeks later, my sister is sitting on one couch, and I'm sitting on the other reading a book. And all of a sudden, there was a massive smack sound that literally sounded throughout the whole house. My mom heard it in her bedroom in the back of the house. Turns out the smack was on my back, handprint and all. My mom and dad both looked at my sister and were about to rip her a new ass whenever I stepped in and told them that she didn't hit me. Something else did. My mother being the paranormal junkie she is, believe me. Maybe three weeks later, I'm sitting at school and all of a sudden, there is a tall black shadow in my classroom. Yes, my classroom. It jumped into my body and I got up and ran to the office. Luckily, my mom worked at the school and was able to run over to the middle school. 
Needless to say, I threw my mother and my uncle off me. My mom told me that she had never seen my eyes so black and my body so hot. I remember waking up from that experience being drenched from sweat and tears. My mom sent me home for the day and immediately called my grandmother and asked for help. And like maybe two or three weeks later, my aunts, uncles, grandmas, and grandpas, and plenty of family were at my house saging and blessing my house and myself. After the fact, I was fine and I didn't feel anything else. My mood was back to normal. I wanted to be around my family again. But the only thing that's residual from that experience is I feel like I'm a little more intuitive with the paranormal. Thank you, ladies, for reading. Stay classy and sassy. Creep it real and don't get scared. Well, luckily you had a family that believed you and helped you. Right. My family wouldn't have had a damn clue. Also, you are extremely hot. Do you think you're possessed? Probably not. I don't know. You do have a new voice coming out. (laughs) I do have that voice. No, I just have perma swamp ass. It's fun. (laughs) But that's so freaking scary. The eyes in the closet? No, thank you. Yeah, it's like a closet. Those things are scary. They are. Uh, When I was a kid, I had the sliding closet doors. It was like one solid. Well, I don't think it was actually solid wood, but it was like two pieces of wood that would like crisscross each other. Those motherfuckers never stayed on. So eventually they just, I just had them off, like literally off. So my closet didn't have doors, Uh -uh. but it wasn't like a walk-in closet. It was just like a in the wall closet. Yeah. It was still big and Carrie had clothes from, I don't know, kindergarten in there. Always jam-packed with shit. I really think it's because growing up big at the age we are, like there wasn't a lot of clothes available. Yeah. So like I felt like if you have a lot of clothes in your closet, you're cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so I like tried to keep as many clothes in my closet as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. But we're glad you're back to normal. And if you have any more stories, we definitely want to hear them since you're more intuitive with the paranormal. Thank y'all for sending in all of these stories. We love them. Y'all love them from the sound of your emails. And if you want your story read on an episode, send it in to us at aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.